this may be the first time this has ever happened to me, but I came up here without my notes. I left them down there. You see that brother right there, Ryan? I mean, I can get up and talk for that one. Here, Ronnie. Thank you, brother. My goodness. Well, sorry about that. Spirit can move anyway, y'all. You know what I mean? Y'all turn with me, if you will, to Isaiah chapter 40. Isaiah chapter 40. Continuing in our look at the gospel according to Isaiah, as we have discussed, kind of jumping from mountain peak to mountain peak throughout the gospel of Isaiah as we look to the good news of the coming of the king as we recognize him in Jesus Christ our Lord. We started in chapter 1 where Isaiah gives that invitation, come let us reason together. Though your sins be as scarlet, they can be as white as snow. And we jumped over to Isaiah 6 where the curtain has pulled back to demonstrate that the one who is in charge, who is ruling and reigning over all things is the Lord God himself who sits on the throne and his glory has been revealed. And we see now then as we looked in Isaiah 11 is that hope, that shoot will come forth from the stump of Jesse and bring salvation, life out of death. And now we turn to Isaiah chapter 40. From, the very, from a very early age, if you're anything like me or how we have raised up our kids. We have catechized our children. It's not something we Baptists often talk about, but in many ways we do. We catechized our children with one big important truth. God is great. God is good. We have made sure that our kids have known that, even from a simple blessing and on. And as we think about it, I want us to consider that again this morning. And I call your attention. Many people have asked about this. I call your attention again to the words of A.W. Tozer. I quoted a few weeks ago from his book, The Knowledge of the Holy. Tozer says, what comes into your minds when you think about God is the most important thing about you. What comes into your mind when you think about God is the most important thing about you. And he goes on in that book to say, the gravest question before the church, always the most revealing thing about the church is its idea of God, just as its most significant message is what it says about God. When we consider this this morning, if we remember that simple statement we learned from a kid, God is great, God is good, and then we consider that what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Our desire this morning is for us to think just how great God is. To think of just how great and glorious he is. And maybe we need to go back to that simple truth again. And I, uh, there may be some in this room that are just that way. That you need to go back to that simple truth again. That we lose sight of how great God is. We lose sight of how glorious he is, how good he is. And we must never forget this truth. Isaiah 40 helps us with this today. It's one of the great chapters of the Bible. 
If we were to look at Isaiah 40 verse by verse, and I can just readily admit to you today that I probably could spend four or five weeks just going through Isaiah 40, one of these great pinnacles of God's word that points us to the glory of God and what he has done for us through his son, Jesus Christ. One of the great chapters of the Bible and what Isaiah 40 has at the center of it is this, God is great, infinitely great. And that's the context for us. And what we need to know also is just as Isaiah 6 made us aware, when you pull the curtain back, we think we know all that's going on around us, and we think we know everything happening in the world, but when the curtains pull back, you actually see who's in charge. You actually understand what's going on and what's happening. So it is here with the greatness of God and his goodness for us. He is great and he is good. Whether we recognize it or not, he is great and he is good. So the context of Isaiah 40 comes to us with the people of God having been unfaithful, having turned away from him under judgment. But God makes an announcement to them to remind them of who he is. And that announcement comes to us here in these verses. And I want to read Isaiah chapter 40 verses 1 through 11 for us this morning. Isaiah 40 verses 1 through 11. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her her, that her warfare is ended and her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice cries, in the wilderness prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up. Every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become level and the rough places a plain and the glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. A voice says, cry. And I said, what shall I cry? All flesh is grass and all its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades. When the breath of the Lord blows on it, surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Go on up to a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news. Lift it up, fear not. Say to the cities of Judah, behold your God. Behold. The Lord God comes with might, and his arm rules for him. Behold, his reward is with him, and his recompense before him. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with young. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word this morning. We thank you for the cry of comfort to your people. And so, God, as your people in this room, I pray that we hear that cry of comfort and we recognize our comfort comes from a king, a king who has come, suffered, died on the cross, rose again, and now is seated at the throne. And so, God, we believe your word is true. We believe the grass withers and the flower fades, but your word stands forever. So, Father, may we be this morning standing firmly upon your word and that truth. God, help us through your word this morning to find that grace that we are desperately in need of and that greatness that you display every day for our lives. Father, we pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen. 
Isaiah 40 begins a new section in the book of Isaiah. At the end of chapter 39, you have Hezekiah the king, and the Lord has done everything. He has told the people over and over again, just as we saw in chapter 1, chapter 6, chapter 11. He's told the people over and over again that judgment is coming unless you repent, and the people have not repented. And even though the Lord had made promises that he will send one who will be Emmanuel, God with us, that he will bring life from the dead stump, he's made those promises. The people have not turned back to him. They have turned away from him. So just as God has said at the end of chapter 39, the nation of Babylon is coming, and it will take you captive. Now this is important because... Remember, Judah is who Isaiah is speaking to. Judah could take part of the two lower tribes here, Judah and Benjamin of Israel. The ten northern tribes have already been taken captive. They've already faced judgment. So Judah should have had an understanding of what God is talking about. They should have understood what was at stake here. Now, even though they saw what happened with the ten northern tribes, they still turned away from God. And God said, Babylon is coming. And ultimately what we find out is Babylon came. About a hundred years after Isaiah made this prophecy, Babylon came and took Judah captive. They destroyed Jerusalem. They knocked the temple to the ground. And what you see in Isaiah 40 is you have almost kind of like, as one commentator said, Isaiah says to the people in chapter 39, Babylon is coming in judgment to you because of your sin. And then Isaiah falls asleep, like Rip Van Winkle, if you will, and wakes up in the future. And now in Isaiah 40, you see him talking about the future. He's prophesying into the future. In other words, these words for Isaiah are coming. Babylon is going to take you into exile. Hear these words, even while you're in exile, even while you are there. Hear these words. Comfort, comfort my people, says the Lord. So here Isaiah is prophesying in the future while Israel is captive in Babylon understanding that the people ultimately are going to blame God, understanding that they're going to think this is God's fault of where they are. They're God's chosen people. They could live how they want to. God was bound to them, and God had never said that. He said, "We, uh, I demand obedience. I demand faithfulness. But even here in verse 27 of chapter 40, why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord, and my right is disregarded by my God? In other words, this is God's fault that we've done this. And Isaiah is going to tell them, even though they're blaming God, even though they've turned away from God, even though this is their own doing because of their sin, God is going to bring comfort to them. Even when they have failed, even when they have turned away, even when they have done wrong, God still brings comfort to his people. In other words, he will come for them. You may be in captivity and you may be lost and undone. You may be outside of the promised land. You may be away from Jerusalem. I have not forgotten about you. Even though you're there because of what you have done, because of your sinfulness, because of your unfaithfulness, even though you're there, not because of my doing, I've been faithful, God says. You're there because of your doing. I will not leave you there, God says. I will not leave you there. But he's going to come for them. He's going to save them. And in this, you see then the greatness of God's amazing grace. Let's look then to this great comfort that we see. In 
chapter 40, verse 2, it says that even when God has shown judgment to his people, he will come again tenderly to them. God's judgment will come to an end at some point, and grace will abound. He says, speak tenderly to Jerusalem. Speak tenderly to his people. We've seen this before. We saw it in Hosea chapter 2 whenever God's people had sinned and, and turned away. Instead of bringing judgment, God sings a song and tries to woo them back to himself and says, come back to me. We've seen this before of how God speaks tenderly to his people whenever they deserve harsh words. God comes faithfully and tenderly to them. Their sins are great, but they can be forgiven, God says. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem, cry to her. Her warfare is ended. Her iniquity is pardoned. She has received from the Lord's hand double for all of her sins. Their sins are great, but God's grace is greater. Hear me when I say this this morning, the picture here is this. No matter how great your sins can be, God is saying, no matter what you have done to me, no matter how many times you've turned away, no matter how great your sins are, you are never too far away from me. As preachers of the gospel of Jesus Christ, what we know is that when we see someone, no matter where they are, no matter what they are in, no matter what they are done, they are never outside of the hand that can save them, the Lord God Almighty. We're never too far gone. Maybe some of you need to hear that this morning. Maybe you've stumbled into this room and you think of your life. You've done too much. You've, 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 you've turned away too many times. You've, you've done so much. No way the Lord would have you hear me say this morning, just as he says in Isaiah 40, so had the people of God. They've done too much. They turned away. They had rejected him even though he'd been gracious over and over again. And yet in the midst of this, he says to me, he says to them, you are not too far gone. No matter what you have done, I'm here. And he speaks tenderly to him. In fact, he even says, you'll receive double grace. Y'all know what grace is, right? Undeserved favor from God. Not something that you deserve, not something that, that you have earned, not something that you have merited in your own strength and power. Grace is a free gift that we have not earned and we have, do not deserve. It goes right there with mercy. Not only does grace, though, what we do not deserve is given to us, but mercy is what we do deserve is withheld from us, right? We have seen all of this and here is the comfort. God gives more grace than all of your sins combined. God's grace never runs out. God's grace is never taxed. God's grace is never waning. God's grace is always sufficient. It is always enough, and it is greater than your sins. It's greater than your sins. God has more grace than we have sin. And that's the reason why I preach, by the way. I proclaim this word because of that truth. I proclaim this word because of that, that truth and the fact that no matter how sinful we may be, no matter what we have done, God has more grace. God has more grace. And today, as we gather in this place, we are not beyond hope because God's grace is enough. And no matter what you can do, it can save you. It is that amazing. It is that great. He shows more mercy. He has more grace then we have shown unfaithfulness. Y'all know the song. My goodness, I, I, I mentioned the song last week and Kevin sang it, praise the Lord. Marvelous grace of our loving God. 
grace that exceeds our sin and our guilt. We've been singing this for a long time. Let those words sink in again to you. Marvelous, infinite, matchless grace, freely bestowed on all who believe. Grace, grace, God's grace, grace that is greater than all of our sin. We cannot forget this truth this morning, that no matter what sins you may have committed, God's grace is greater. It's greater. So all we have to do is call upon him. All we have to do is ask for it. Recognize that how free God's grace is for you this morning, that all you've got to do is cry out for it. All you've got to do is ask for it. All you've got to do is call to the Lord and he gives it. You don't have to jump through any hoops. You don't have to do any, any cartwheels. You don't have to do anything spectacular or anything amazing for you. God is the one who's spectacular. God is the one who is amazing. All you have to do is ask and he bestows his grace. He bestows his grace. How is this possible? That's what we may think. That's what I think, right? You start thinking, how can we do this? All right, I get it. God's grace is greater than our sin, but how, is this, how does this work? Does he just sweep our sin under the rug? Does he ignore our sin? Does he just forget about our sin? How can this message, in other words, of comfort be true if we recognize who God is? And we saw Isaiah 6, and, and if you're unholy, you cannot enter into his presence. You've got to be made holy. So how does this work? Can God just, just sweep our sins under the rug? Can he just forget about them and just declare us to be holy in some way? Is that how it works? How could this message of comfort be true then? In Isaiah chapter 40 Isaiah hears a voice, a witness, if you will, crying out. Maybe one who predicts the question, how can this be true? God's grace is greater than double all of our sins. How can this be true? Maybe he hears one say, how is this? What was the question here? And a voice cries out. A voice begins to come. And where does this comfort come from? This comfort, this grace comes because God is going to send a king to us. He's going to send a king in verse 3. A voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. This is like the statement of a herald who, who comes into a town that says, guess who's visiting for you today? The king is coming here today. And so you better straighten up. You remember how we used to, uh, I remember how I used to have to clean up going at home and my mom would make me clean up and I'd do it halfway. I was not a good cleaner, but I can straighten with the best of them. And so I would straighten up and think that was good. And mom would come in there and nitpick and do all things. And you know what I would always say, mom, is the president coming today? This is ridiculous. This is more than you should have to do. And so it is here. This is what happens in Isaiah 40. This voice cries out, guess who is coming? Guess who is coming to town? Make straight the way because he, the king is entering in. This is an announcement that's being made. A herald's going before the king who is coming, putting in place preparations. There's a plan that's done. You can't just show up with the king without a plan. The plan is coming. Everything will be in order. The valleys will be lifted up. The mountains will be made low. This is not just speaking in some topographical map and doing these things. Literally, what he's saying is that righteousness must be made right here. Morality must come. Here comes the king. Prepare your hearts. Prepare your life. When this king comes, he'll be able to accomplish all that has been said for him. When this king comes, he'll be able to do everything that's been promised. When this king comes, he will bring about the forgiveness and pardon of your sins. When this king comes, he will carry grace in his hands. And this king will come right on time. Not too early, not too late. 
This king will come, as it says, this one will enter in. The glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and everyone will see it. All flesh will see this king. No one will be left out. None of his people. It's, it's like this. You hear that announcement and, uh, of something that's taking place, and you begin to think, am, am I going to be left out? I need to know. I need to put this on my calendar. I need to make sure. And here the herald says, you can be sure of this. When this king enters in, no one will be outside of this announcement. This announcement will come, and all flesh will see this king's glory. All flesh will see his glory, so you can be sure that there's no special passes in this. There's no special knowledge. There's no get up to the front to see a little bit closer. What happens when this king comes is that all of his glory will be revealed, and all flesh will see it together. The rich don't get to see it first. The poor don't get to see it last. Whatever color, whatever nation, wherever you are from, you do not have special privilege on this. All flesh will see this king, he says. All flesh will see him. All will know him. And what will they see? They'll see the glory of the Lord, he says. The glory of the Lord shall be revealed. God's glory throughout the scriptures have shown itself in many ways. We remember as we looked in, in Exodus chapter 20 at the great uh, Ten Commandments. We remember that and how God's glory came down to Sinai and there was like a whirlwind of fire and smoke and, and God spoke and the earth quaked. You remember that glory or you, you remember Ezekiel maybe and how Ezekiel saw the glory of the Lord like flaming chariots coming down from heaven. He saw the glory of the Lord there. Or, or, or you remember those who did see God's glory. Moses, for example, who went up and, and he just simply asked, can I just catch the fringes of your glory? Just catch me a little bit of your glory. And just seeing the fringes of his glory, not even looking at it straight on, Moses' face glowed for three days. He saw the glory of God. So we have seen God's glory. It's shown itself throughout Scripture over and over in magnificent ways. But now, today, we must come understanding something. We may be looking for that. You may be looking for that pillar of fire by night and the pillar of cloud by day of God's glory over his people. You may be looking for the earth to quake. You may be looking for those things. But what we know from reading the New Testament is God's glory has shown itself in a much more magnificent way than that. God's glory has shown itself in a much more magnificent way than than. than enveloping a mountain with fire and smoke. God's glory has shown itself in a much more significant and magnificent way now because God has come to us. He has humbled himself to become one of us. Just as John chapter 1 says, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. In other words, the glory of God has been revealed to us, not with fire and smoke, but a much more magnificent way. The glory of God has been revealed to us through the sending of his own Son, who has humbled himself, who has humbled himself to come to us. And we have seen his glory. We have seen his glory. And what does John in John chapter 1 say? John says that this one who comes who brings the glory of God, this one is this king that Isaiah is talking about. In fact, if you just move over a little bit in John chapter 1 verse 23, they go out to John the Baptist and the Pharisees try to tra trap him. Who do you say you are? Who do you say you are? 
You a prophet? What are you? And John's like, I don't know who I am. Here is what I will tell you. I am the voice crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. John the Baptist is saying, I'm the one who's coming to announce the coming of the king. I'm the herald who's making this way come. And so John, through his word, and John the Baptist, through his gospel, here is pointing us back to Isaiah 40 to say, when Isaiah 40 speaks of the king who is coming, who will reveal the glory of the Lord and all flesh will see it, it is speaking about Christ Jesus himself. It's talking about Jesus, and that glory has been revealed now through him. God has humbled himself. He has shown his glory by humbling himself all the way down to becoming one of us and humbled himself even beyond that to the point of death, even death on a cross, Philippians 2 says. He's humbled himself to death where he died for us. Jesus said of himself when he's going to the cross, now is the time for the Son of Man to be glorified. Now is the time for God to be seen. And just as those Ten Commandments came on a mountain and fire and smoke was revealed, something greater happened on the hill of Calvary, right? Where Jesus goes to the cross and the sky goes dark and the earth quakes and the rocks split open and even the dead have to come out of the tombs because if this one is going to die, life is coming. Life is coming. And there the glory of God has been revealed. It's been revealed in this one who has come God himself became visible in his son, Jesus Christ, and his presence is with us. As Isaiah 7 said, it would be Emmanuel, God with us. He is here, and he came to save us from the greatest of our iniquities. How is it that the Lord can say, comfort my people, I will pardon your sins, my grace is greater. He cannot sweep that under the rug because his holiness demands a payment. He cannot just forget about it because the Lord forgets nothing. But what he can do, what he has done, is send his own son in his glory to take those sins upon himself so that we no longer bear them or hold them. And we have been redeemed. And there the glory of God has been revealed to us. Not in the Ten Commandments of the law, but in the grace of God in His Son, Jesus Christ. God saving us from the greatest of our iniquities has happened. And God has displayed His glory by, dis by sending His King to become a servant so that He would die, that His people may become free from their sin. And how can we be sure about this, right? How can we be certain? We see that comfort has come through the king, but how can we be certain and sure? What about that? What about this truth that's being said, this comfort that's being offered? Be comforted because if God says this is what he is going to do, this is what he's going to do is what he says. In other words, be comforted because God's word is certain. Look at what he says here in verses 6 and 7. What shall I cry? All flesh is grass, and its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades. The breath of the Lord blows on it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Why can we be so sure this morning as we have ascended to this pulpit and sang from this stage the praise that our king is coming and there's coming a, a day that will be far greater than we can ever possibly know because there'll be no sorrows there. Don't get me started again on that. What can we say about this? How can we be sure about these things? We live in a world with so much uncertainty. 
We live in a world where we don't know what's going to happen tomorrow, right? Shoot, the last couple years, the last months have been showing us this over and over again. The news tomorrow could be radically different than it was yesterday. We don't know what's coming. We don't know what's going to happen. The world of uncertainty of uncertainty is there, but we as believers should never be shaken by that. We as believers should never be, be, be paused by that. Why? Because we as believers have a word that has been given to us that we see in here that is certain, certain beyond we can ever possibly know. Yes, you see the uncertainty. The grass withers, the flower fades. Life happens. It sprouts up in the morning, it's gone in the afternoon. But not the word of the Lord. The word of God is sure. The word of God stands forever. The word of God can never be wrong, and, and you can take it, you can test this, and you can try it, and you maybe can come up with all kind of reasons why you say, well, that, that doesn't seem like it could be true. Well, by all means, take God's word, open it up, start reading it. Start reading it and see what he promises and see if it hasn't come to pass. Put it to the test. I've got no fear of that. It's like turning a lion loose on the, on the, on the, on the beach with all these people laying around and saying, y'all don't hurt the lion. By no means. Turn God's word loose. I don't have to protect it. I don't have to stand up here and, and make arguments for it. I don't have to sit here and try to get you, convince you what it is. Open it up and read it yourself, and you'll find that it is true. Amen. Test it among, amongst yourselves. And if God's word stands forever and it's true, then by all means, I'm not going to add to it. I've got nothing to offer with it. And if God's word stands together and it's true, then by no means am I going to take away from it. I'm going to preach the whole counsel of it from start to finish because it's true. If God's word is true, I'm not going to twist it to serve my own goods because that's foolishness and nonsense. If God's word is true, I'm not going to be scared of it either. I'm going to proclaim it boldly, even in the face of a world that doesn't think it's true or right. If God's word is true, then by all means, shouldn't we proclaim it? And that's exactly what he says. The word of our God will stand forever. Therefore, get up on the highest mountain you can find. Go to the place where your voice, with all that you have, lift up your voice with strength. Give everything you got. If this word is true and God's king has come and salvation is in his king and his grace is greater than all of your sins, then go get on the highest mountain you can get on and scream with the loudest voice you have, Behold your God. Amen. And when you point to the one you're proclaiming, you're pointing to Jesus Christ, the King who rules and reigns forever. There he is. Look at what he's done. Behold your God. He's alive. He's living. He's active. He's working in your hearts even now. He's closer to you than your fingertips. He's not some hiding under some hot rock somewhere. He's not some distant God that you can't get a hold of. You don't have to even get an appointment to see him. You can call on him right now. You don't have to speak to his secretary or his assistant or anybody else. You can call on the Lord right where you are and he hears you. Behold your God. King of kings. Lord of lords. The glory has been revealed. As Paul says in 1 Corinthians 4, the glory of the Lord has been seen in the face of Jesus Christ. And that face shines brightly for us. 
And what does our God come to do in verse 10? Behold, the Lord comes with his might. His arm rules for him. He comes to conquer. He comes to rule. He comes to reign. Behold, his reward, reward is with him. His recompense before him. He comes bearing gifts for those who believe and those who are subjects of his kingdom. And as we know, the gifts he bear are greater than all that we could ever possibly know. For as Ephesians chapter 2 says, he saves us so that he may bestow upon us the riches of heaven. Behold your God who comes in might with gifts in his hands for you. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosoms and he will gently lead those that are with young. In other words, this God who comes is going to care for his people. He's going to carry you. He's going to lead you. He's going to give you everything you need. He'll take you into the green pastures. Y'all heard about a shepherd that does that before, right? He'll lead you beside the still waters. And when you have to go through the valley of the shadow of death, he will walk you right through it. Why? Because he's already been through it himself and came out on the other side. This is our shepherd. This is the king who will comfort you. Here Isaiah says, this is the comfort that you can know. How can we be sure of this? Just read the rest of Isaiah 40. We don't have time to go through this. But if you want to question the assurance that you may have that God can accomplish this, he'll go on. Who's measured the waters in the hollow of his hand? Who's marked out the heavens with a span? I'm the one who has determined, the Lord says, everything that goes on in this place. I hold the waters of the world in the palm of my hands. You try to go measure the ocean. Well, you'll find out quickly you can't, but God knows every square inch. And he holds it in his hand, he says. You can be sure I have the power. You can be sure I'm the one that can save you. You can be sure that I will never leave you nor forget you. You can be sure that I will pardon your sins. Why? Because I will send my king. He will die for you. My glory will be seen. And I will care for you. I will care for you. At the end of the chapter, the passage we all know so well, in Isaiah 40, you have these two rhetorical questions, if you will. Have you not known? Have you not heard? We could ask these questions to us this morning. Have you not known? Have you not heard? There's no excuses for us. All flesh has seen the glory of God. And here in this place, in this room, that can most explicitly be said. Not because you have some glorious preacher, by no means. What you have is a glorious word. What you have is a glorious scripture. What you have is a glorious gospel. What you have is a glorious Savior. And all we simply seek to do is lift him up and exalt him. Have you not seen? Have you not heard the excuses that you could list by not trusting in the one who has grace greater than your sin? Our foolishness and nonsense compared to the glory that has been revealed. Amen. Have you not seen? Have you not heard? May it not be the case with any of us today that we don't recognize that our God is great. He's everlasting creator. As it says here, he's everlasting creator to the ends of the earth. Our God is great. He is always at work. He's never asleep. He's never down on the job. He's always in control. He's always listening to you. Our God is great and his word is always true. And our God is good. He gives power to the faint. 
He renews those who trust in him. He gives wings like eagles for those who are weary. And he gives grace greater than all of our sin. Our God is great and he is good. And maybe today you still feel like you're in captivity. Maybe today you still feel like the Babylonians have a hold on you and you need to recognize today that is not from the doing of the Lord God Almighty. That's from your own sinfulness, your own rejection of him, your own turning away, your own unwillingness to trust him and give him all things in your life. And today, have you not seen, have you not heard, have you not known that the only hope you can have, the only freedom from the bondage of the sin in your life that you can know is through the one, the king who has come, who died for you, Emmanuel, God with us, and who was raised for you. Have you not seen and have you not known that the word of God is true? And he says today, anyone who calls on the name of my king shall be saved. So let us not neglect so glorious a king and so glorious a salvation. Have you not known have you not heard? Let's pray together. Father, we thank you so much for your kindness to us, for you have sent us your son, Jesus Christ. We thank you, Father, that while we were completely undeserving, you have shown us grace. While, Father, we deserve wrath and judgment, you have shown us mercy. And while, God, we were lost in our sin, you have not forgotten about us and left us, but you have remembered us, Father, and you've remembered us in the most glorious and magnificent way in sending your Son to die for us. So may no one here, Father, may no one here, may no one in this room neglect so glorious a salvation. Help us all to know today afresh and anew of the great and marvelous grace of our God. And Father, if someone here needs to turn from you, to step out of their bondage, to step out of their sinfulness, Father, to step out of a, a life where they're not loving you or following you, God, but yet they've heard today of your glory that has been revealed in Christ, may they turn from you even now. And may they flee Flee to the cross. Flee to a Savior who has come with grace greater than all their sin. Help us this morning, Father, to proclaim the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ, and to offer, just as you have done through the power of your Spirit, the grace that is greater than all of our sins. We ask all of this in Jesus' name, our Lord. Let's stand together and sing.